0: fit toys.
1: Welcome to episode 574 with my return guest, Alicia Schlesinger. let say that fast 10 times. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. social media handle you can follow us at is at MentalPod. And our website is MentalPod.com. A word about this uh, interview with Alicia. We reference a video Um a news piece that was on, uh, I believe it was, was CBS. And it was when Alicia was kind of out there battling her untreated, uh, mental illness and she was living on the streets. And it was kind of a plea by her sister, um, being interviewed and saying she needs help. You know, anybody who can help her, please, uh, you know, please, please help us. Um, she's not safe out there and um and she needs she needs help and she needs to get someplace safe so that's what we are uh referencing when we talk about that video let's do some surveys before we get to that interview with uh, alicia this is from the fears survey and if you've never filled out uh surveys uh, they're a big part of the show and they really help the show so um Go to our website, and then you'll see a thing that says Surveys, and just uh, fill one out if you feel like it. Uh, and I always forget to mention this, but uh, we can always use financial support on the on the podcast. Uh, you can become a uh, one-time donor via PayPal, or you can become a recurring monthly donor via PayPal or Patreon. And I recommend Patreon because uh, sometimes you get little freebies like episodes that... Uh, you know, bonus episodes that won't air for uh, non-Patreon people. And I do that just to spite those people. (laughs) Uh, This is from the FEARS survey filled out by That Dork from High School, and she writes, I fear that I won't live up to my potential. My teachers have always said I didn't apply myself, and I'm afraid that even at 32 years old, I won't ever become the person I could have been. I think a lot of us relate to that one, and that is such a annoying feeling, that feeling that for me it presents itself as that like ticking clock uh, at the the beginning of the show 60 Minutes where it's just tick, 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 and there's a little part of my brain that's like, you lazy fuck, what are you doing? This is also from the FEARS survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Clark's Third Law. Um, And she writes, Today, I'm afraid of failure in trying. I just imagine that people laugh at my efforts. I heard, quote, If you are born poor, it's just circumstances. But if you die poor, it's your fault, unquote. I ask myself if I'm lazy. Did I really try to be more than a broke loser? You know, whoever said that, uh, if you die poor, it's your fault. You know, fuck them. Fuck them and their McMansion. This is also from the fear survey filled out by Gretel's Crumbs. And uh, she writes, I fear that I will continue to fall in love with the most unavailable humans, therefore being alone for the rest of my life, leading to dying alone in a shitty apartment and being eaten by my cats. I have a lot of cats what if my dead body isn't enough to sustain them <laughs> it's so fucking fantastic well then i think you you uh, while you're alive you bump up the calories or maybe you don't care about your cats uh, also from the Fear survey filled out by Punk Rock Blockhead, and he writes, I'm afraid that I've gotten too old to die young, and my lack of ambition has made it too late to ever really, quote, become somebody, unquote, or fully function in society. It also scares me how little I care about the future. You know, th- this one really uh, rang some some bells for me. Not the too old to die young, but the, quote, become somebody. Um that was something that really obsessed me uh, and until I got sober and really started getting into support groups. And what changed for me, you know, not that I don't care about leaving a mark on society, but for me, the, the mark that I wanted to make was a professional, artistic, creative, recognition, admiration-based mark on the world. And after I started getting sober, I realized that I can leave a mark on the world that might might not be publicized, but being of service where I can, helping other people and taking the the things in my life where maybe I hurt other people or I was an asshole and drawing on those experiences and trying to right those wrongs and sharing that with other people who were, you know, who are in a place where I used to be and they're consumed by guilt and self-loathing, what I found was the, the sense of meaning and purpose that I got from that, which, you know, I didn't do out of an altruistic sense of, you know, suddenly I'm going to make the world a better place. It was like, I don't want to drink myself to death. And so just By following suggestions from people in my support group about, you know, trying to be of service, live honestly, apologize when you're wrong, you know, shit, we're taught in kindergarten, I began to like myself more. I began to feel less guilty, and I began to feel that I was making a tiny, tiny, tiny little difference in the world. And instead of being a cancer on society, you know, I was uh, a little bit of medicine. So I don't know if that helps you or not. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Oops! All the Trauma. and He's in his 20s and he writes This past month my grandfather was put on at-home hospice care. All of the family was alerted that our time with him was running short and that everyone should come say their goodbyes. This was especially difficult because of how incredibly abusive my grandfather was to his children. Beat them with closed fists and Verbally abused them, even as adults. Despite all this, my father took care of him in his old age and was the only one of his siblings who would speak to their father. My grandfather was an engineer on Apollo 11, a civil rights leader in Milwaukee in the 60s, and a multimillionaire from day trading. Despite his accompl- accomplishments and positive political impact, he was a gigantic piece of shit for what he did to his kids. I came from out of state for Christmas and also to visit him. I rode with my dad to his house the Saturday before Christmas. Grandpa and I, despite everything, were on good terms. As despicable as I think he is, he is an extremely fascinating person to share a beer with. We spent the day together discussing politics and whatnot. He was very happy to see me. At one point, he asked me, did I get you a birthday present this year? To which I said no. He then pulled out his checkbook and said, I'm going to write you a check for $5,000. My eyes widened. I tried to play it cool. Thank you, I said. "Um," My dad chimed in. We actually might need to get going. How about 50000 my grandfather said. Please don't leave. I realized what was happening here. My grandfather was desperately trying to buy my affection, terrified of never seeing us again. "'We really need to get going,' my father insisted. "'We can come back uh, for the check tomorrow.' I held my grandfather's hand tightly and said, "'I'll see you again real soon, I promise.' My father assured me that my grandfather was not of sound enough mind to be giving away that much money and that I shouldn't take it from him." I figured there was some truth to it, but I couldn't help but fixate on how easily I could make all my financial problems disappear with that kind of money. Goodbye, student loan debt. Goodbye, crappy apartment. That evening, we got a call from my grandfather's wife that he had fallen. We rushed over. When we arrived, we found him face down on the floor. My dad and I worked together to roll him over. His eyes bulged out of his skull. His mouth hung agape. As his head laid on the floor, his jaw bounced open and closed. I could have sworn he was trying to say something, but he wasn't. He was dead. We spent the next four hours waiting for the funeral home to come take his body, sitting in the room with his corpse, corpse which stared blankly at the ceiling. On his desk was a check with my name out on it, on it, made out for $50. In that moment, I was overwhelmed with a collage of emotions, frustration that my dad prevented me from making a life-changing sum of money, utter shock from my first experience with the recently deceased, and a total lack of surprise at my grandfather's final act on earth being the use of money to spite his family. I feel guilty for feeling cheated As I prepare for my next semester of grad school, trying to budget out how I'll keep my head above water till I can find steady work, I can't help but feel bitter that this didn't have to be an issue if my father just let me stay a little longer. I feel guilty for feeling this because I also know that a man has died and I wish I could grieve him more than the money, the money that I didn't get. I can't help but picture myself as a greedy, gold-digging vulture who never cared. Wow, that was amazing. And uh, boy, you are hard on yourself. You sound like such a nice, sensitive guy. And um, and, and your dad is a fucking miracle that your dad grew up with this and, and that he could, I mean, truly, you know, I don't know what your dad is like outside of this survey, but he sounds like a good guy, as as do you. And uh, I don't know if it makes you feel any better. Uh, there there was a woodworker named Sam Maloof who, for woodworkers especially in America, was a god. He, you know, his stuff's in the Smithsonian. He just, he's self-made. His stuff is beautiful and organic. Um, and he when he was alive, he lived not too far uh, from me, you know, maybe 40 40 minutes. And one day I went because he had a museum of his stuff uh, on the property where his workshop was. And he was like 93 at this point. And so I went and I toured the, the museum and it was just amazing seeing this furniture in person and running my hands over it. And And I went to the little bookstore they had, and the woman, uh, and I bought his book. And the woman behind the counter said, You know, I think Sam might be on the property today. Would you like him to sign it? And I was like, Holy shit, yes. I would love that. So Sam comes walking in, super nice guy signs the book, and he says, oh, we're actually uh, expanding. We're uh, we're putting a new building in where I'm going to show off uh, artists that I like, show off their work. Do you want to see it? I'm like, fuck yeah. And so we go traipsing over to this building, and we're walking around. It's still under construction, so there's wires and everything all over the place, and I got Sam's book in my hand. And Sam, unbeknownst to him, snags his foot on a electric cord, and he starts falling over. And I go to to grab him and to keep him from hitting the ground. And as I'm doing this, my brain says, if you let him fall, that book will be worth more money. So I don't know if that makes you feel any better, but We are sponsored today by the online therapy provider, BetterHelp.com. They've been a sponsor for years on this podcast, and I am so grateful for the progress that I've made in therapy uh, using them. My current counselor, Heidi, as i shared the last uh, few weeks in a row, has been helping me kind of get unstuck creatively and productivity-wise and uh she's given me some things to do um setting timers giving myself rewards with uh, with video games after i do work and i gotta say i i'm feeling uh i'm just feeling so much more productive and that you know kind of ticking clock that i talked about earlier in the podcast being in my head telling me that i'm not doing enough it's 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 quieted it down um so that's been my experience with uh, with BetterHelp, among a lot of other things. But they're licensed in 50 states. Um, you can look for a particular area of expertise. You can choose from a variety of counselors. If uh, you, you get matched with one and it's not a good fit, you can always change counselors. And I'm just a big fan of them. So go to BetterHelp.com. Dot com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so you, they know you came from the podcast. And then just fill out a questionnaire and you can choose a counselor from the list they give you. And then you can uh, get 10% off your first month of uh, of counseling. Um, yeah, check it out. Betterhelp.com slash mental. And then uh, finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Hotel California. She writes, My parents are both still around, and they are somewhat in my life, but they've never been there for me emotionally. I don't think they knew or know how. I can't express sadness or talk to them about my troubles, but I do have one person in my life who's like a mother to me. She's my boss. She's taken me under her wing and treats me the way I wish my mother did. I feel bad for saying that because my mom isn't absent. She's just not there in a way I wish she was. Same with my dad. My boss has become my mentor, my light, my guide. Nothing I ever say or do could be sufficient enough to show how much she means to me and how much she's helping me. Having her in my life makes me so happy. When I met her, I was suicidal. Because of her, I feel like I'm worth having around. I just love her to pieces. Just wanted to share that family doesn't always mean blood. It's who loves you unconditionally, helps you grow, and wants you to be happy with the best life you can ever imagine.
2: Your fear of death is your love of
0: life in reverse.
1: gotta look for them. will one day be your greatest strength.
0: And when you find them, it's a great feeling.
1: <laughs> and I'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Ah, you're in the right place. I am here with my good friend, Alicia Schlesinger. We've known each other for probably 11 years. Um, you were a guest on the i believe the first year of my podcast maybe one of the first 30 or 40 guests if if not sooner than that because you um are somebody that i've always felt a, a kinship with and um boy have you been through the fucking ringer in the last <laughs> 5 6 years and and i've mentioned you you on the podcast without saying your name But saying a friend of mine is really suffering and she's on the streets and I don't know what to do, but I can't be around her if she's not going to take her meds because we don't share a reality and it's too painful. And here you are. The Alicia I know and love is back, and I missed you so fucking much.
0: Thank you, Paul. It's really good to be here with you. Thank you for asking me back, and um, yeah, it's amazing. It's been quite a journey, and um, yeah, I'm grateful to be here with you.
1: So where, where do we start? Um, I'll, I'll share my first memory that something was going on with you. We were at our support group meeting, and you shared you told me that every license plate on your drive over had six 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 in the license and I went that's that's not possible and it the thing that is so weird when somebody is in a state is psychosis the the right word
0: uh I think it is yeah. I mean I think it is.
1: Uh, when they're in that state is they sound completely lucid. If you eliminate what it is they're saying, the way they're saying it, the way you were saying it was not an ounce different right. than it was before.
0: Right. Right. Well, what would I say? Um, you know, I like to start with with the end point. The end product right. um, when I'm talking about what has gone on in the last five years. And I think, you know, it um, It ended up that somebody made um, an anonymous donation of $6,000 to a place called the Amon Clinics. And I don't know if you're familiar Daniel with Daniel Amen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I went and had a brain scan. Um, I guess it was uh, back in July. And um, I wanted to know the answers, right? So um, what you're referring to it is a period of time of about the last uh, five years. (laughs) Um, It started in 2016. And um, I wanted to know the answers. So um, I committed to myself to go through all the blood work, the brain scans, all of it. And what they came back with is... I don't know if you're familiar with their process.
1: I'm, I'm not... You briefly mentioned it when we were talking on the phone that they take hundreds more images than... Uh, a typical brain scan Well, does, they, they take
0: two. They they do. I don't exactly know the difference between a SPEC scan, which is what they do, and a regular brain scan. I got
1: you. But
0: what they have is they have the largest database of brain scans.
1: Oh, that's what you... Yes. yes. In I,
0: reference to, like, psychiatric conditions and any, anything in regards to mental health, from anxiety to depression to post-traumatic stress to... You know, bipolar, schizophrenic—you name it. They—they they have a brain scan database that covers that. So um, I went in with kind of open hands, of like, you know, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna address this, whatever that looks like.
1: And were you? How long ago was this? And were you on your medication when you made this decision?
0: I yes, I was. Okay. I was on one and a half milligrams of risperidone, which is a really low dose, mm-hmm. and that's where I had been and uh it was a family decision and i mean i was already committed so the fact that it was given was
1: committed to doing it i was already
0: committed to doing it okay but the fact that um it was offered was like such an incredible opportunity so my family was 100 percent supportive of it
1: Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and um like i said it's an expensive process so it was it was about six thousand dollars
1: and where were you living at the time
0: um At a place in Tarzana, like a sober living, Mm -hmm. which is um, part of what I have to do to fulfill my obligations for, you know, everything that's gone on in the last five years. So it's a court thing, which which
1: we will talk about.
0: Yes, we will definitely talk about it. So um, I did the brain scan. I did the history. I did the blood. I did all of it. And um, they found no evidence of mental illness that for me was a huge, huge, um, relief. That was kind of my intuitive hit, but it's very difficult when you have behavior that doesn't add up to other people, right? to share an intuitive hit. Like, I, you know, that's not like what they're diagnosing me with. That's not really what there's no way that that's what I have. It doesn't make sense. And mm-hmm. I had reiterated that to doctors and I got diagnoses of bipolar and schizophrenia and schizoaffective. And, you know, mm-hmm. and what I said is I don't have like a whole lifelong history of this and I would try and share it with them. But when you're Going through the middle of that, and there's all these moving pieces, people Mm -hmm. don't really want to hear that. Right. So, um...
1: Well, let me just pause you there. Try to remember where where it was that we paused. Mm -hmm. Help me understand how someone can be experiencing psychosis, um but not have an underlying mental illness.
2: What they,
0: what the diagnosis was that he gave me was a stress-induced psychotic
1: episode. And, and when, that's not considered a mental illness? It well, was, it's not and, that and, it's... And maybe I shouldn't be getting into the labels because, you know, I don't want it to, to be stigmatized. I just, I like to try doing the podcast. I like to try to be accurate in how we... Uh, the terms we use and and stuff like that because I'm not a professional and I always worry that I'm going to say something incredibly stupid.
0: No, I'm glad you're bringing it up. Um, I'm glad you're bringing it up. It was the first time for me that any kind of diagnosis actually fit. Mm -hmm. Um, The other diagnoses that I had received did not fit. Mm -hmm. Um, And like I said, I was alone. (laughs) in that particular group, you know, of of not of contesting the diagnosis. This time when he said, I said, that makes so much sense to me. And um it's not that it's not mental illness, it's not chronic mental illness. It's not it's, it's, it's situational. not situational. Yes, it's sensu situa- it's situational. Acute? Is that
1: what they call it?
0: That no, I don't know. Again, I don't know the verbiage. I just keep my I
1: mouth shut and listen. No,
0: it's all good. I um, that was like um, really liberating for me. Um, it was circumstantial, so it's not like it happened out of nowhere.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, there were circumstances around it that were the stressor that created um this thing, and it happened twice. Okay, and the stressors were exactly the same. Right. So, which, which were. Uh, I am not someone who can ever be homeless. (laughs) I am just not somebody that can ever be homeless. And yet
1: you were for? A a year. A year. And and
0: I was the first time for two months. Mm -hmm. And I was the second time on and off for a year because I was in this 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 experience of psychosis or whatever it was i was
1: there yeah i was there and you you would call me and you would say i don't feel safe i want to spend the night in the police station yeah i remember that and because i you said you believed that that the i think the fbi was spying on you and people were breaking into your apartment and you were very very sure about it and there's i tried reasoning with you and there was no way, so I thought, you know, I'll, I'll drop her off at the, the police department so she, she'll feel safe for the night. Um, but th- then it it just went kind of on and on for a couple of days, where I, I could just see the writing on the wall that this really seemed like an untenable situation if if you did not want to get professional. Help and it was well, I was getting it. That's that's work.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I, you know, here's the amazing thing about this entire situation in retrospect. Right. Um, on the other side of it, thirteen fifty 50s, 13. 13. Did
1: they give you a trophy for your 12?
0: I guess they did. <laughs> um, <laughs> psychiatrist, psychologist, um. Once you're in the system, that's the go-to. So, um what do you
2: mean?
0: uh I I discussed it with some of the police officers and there would be times where they would lean at a 5150 and I'd be like, "Why are you putting me on a 5150?" and they'd be like, "My supervisor said to." Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, "That's really not a good enough reason for me." <laughs> you know, um here's how I look at it. Like for me, it's really hard to look at it in the microscopic without going to the macro view right if that makes sense it does you know i think and when, it's your story yeah i think when you and i talked um you know what i'll say is before it really happened life was like really good for me i was doing really well in my job um I'd had the best month I'd ever had. I, w- I was a senior uh, loan officer and a mortgage person for 20 years. I had the best month I'd ever had. I had a healing practice and that was doing really well. And uh, I had gone to Philadelphia to speak f- uh, for a weekend. Like there were there were amazing, really amazing things happening. I had assisted. I got my master's in spiritual psychology, which I know we talked about at depth. Mm-hmm. Last time I was here and I had gone to the university and I had assisted one of the programs for 10 days and um, things were really good. And, um, you know, what I'll say about the first time is I made a couple mistakes and I don't know. I think my uh, my stepmom and I got into a fight. My dad w- had uh, undiagnosed Alzheimer's and there's like I could go through all the details, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day. Uh, we got into an argument. Um, my dad said some things that weren't accurate because of his Alzheimer's, but he wasn't diagnosed at the time. Right. Uh, it ended up being me leaving the guest house where I was renting, mm-hmm. and I had had this phenomenal month, right? So I had a lot of money in the bank, so I wasn't worried about it necessarily at the beginning, but um. The way it happened, it was, it was super traumatic. I mean, for me to be candid about what happened to me, I was good. I got in the fight with my family. Um, I, you know, I had to leave where I was renting, um, I had a job lined up. But here's the other thing. I, I also had all my business wrapped up with my family. So I lost my source of business. I lost the place I was living. This was all like unforeseen. And then so
1: stress on top of stress. Oh,
0: stress on top of stress, but I mean I'd never been homeless. I mean I'd always mm-hmm. made incredible money. I've you know, self supporting. It's just not something that I knew anything about. I went to a, a company that I used to work for and I was a top producer there and I thought I had the job and it was to shoe in and I didn't look for another job and the election happened and the mortgage rates went up and they went on a hiring freeze and I couldn't find a job. And, uh, before I knew it, I was in my car. So what I can say about that is that could happen to anyone. Mm-hmm. In fact, like it's my family has like really, um, they've been really incredibly supportive. Um, they dove into and I was talking to my brother and he was talking to someone that worked with homeless people um, because there is so much stigma around mental health and there's and homelessness, so, and, homelessness. Yeah. and everybody was sure that I was an untreated meth addict on the street doing drugs, dealing drugs. I mean, and I am not a substance abuser. I mean, there, but for the grace of God go I, right? But that's right. not my deal, right? I have other things I've had to deal with in my life, but that wasn't the deal, right? But um You know, my brother was like, you know, so most people have this assumption, right, that most people on the street are either mentally ill or they're drug addicted.
1: Or they choose to be there.
0: Or they choose to be there. And he was talking to a homeless advocate and she said, you know what most people don't realize is that most people in the United States are one set of circumstances away from being homeless. Like it literally can happen to anyone, mm-hmm. you know, with the right set Damn. of conditions. Right. And, um, so that was the first time that it happened. And then I was good for a year. Um, there were a lot of there were a lot of events that happened. You know, one of the things that happened is I got pulled over during that time by a police officer, you know, And I was not ok. And um, he didn't follow protocol, like standard protocol. And that was and it was two o'clock in the morning. I'm single female, I was by myself. He didn't follow protocol. I was not okay to begin with, and I took off. Mm-hmm. You know? So uh, I ended up uh, going to jail for 16 months for evading a police officer. And like, this is somebody with no criminal record. Right. Like I have no criminal record. Right. But I guess to to kind of go back to where we were at the beginning, what's like what I was talking about, it's hard to talk about the micro without talking about mm-hmm. the macro. Like, like when you asked me, would you be willing to tell your story on the podcast, right? And I said, I told you that when this thing kind of came to completion, I missed a court date. And so uh, Ventura County takes that very seriously. And you go to jail for missing court dates in Ventura County. So I ended up in jail and it was in jail that I found out about the infamous CBS video. And, um, you know, the short on that is that my sister, uh, who is, you know, I'm very close with my family, but my sister is probably the closest person to me on the planet, Mm. And, you know, I'm the godmother of my 12-year-old niece, and I'm the godmother of my seven-year-old nephew. And I'm, you know, I'm in their life usually uh, when I'm good, like four to five days a week. I mean, I participate. You know, my nephew thought he had three parents when he was little. Mm -hmm. He used to ask if I was a parent. He told me I was a parent, too. And like, so I'm really used to being in their lives. They're used to me being there. So um I don't know if you know or I I, I shared. Yes. I saw it. But my dad also passed away during this time. So he had Alzheimer's, as I mentioned, but he ended up catching COVID at the um, home he lived in Mm. and passing away while I was on the street.
1: I'm so sorry.
0: Thank you, Paul. Um, I have been able to like to do a lot of my grieving, but he was one of my favorite people in the world and one of my sisters. And my sister was losing my dad and losing me. And um, so um,
1: the CBS thing,
0: the CBS thing, right. She had felt really powerless about my situation. She didn't really know how to handle it. Um, And CBS approached her based on a letter that she had written to the governor, they picked it up and they she uh, they approached her and asked if she wanted to do the interview. And I know that she was kind of 50-50 mm-hmm. and she ended up doing it. And when I found out about it, I thought, my life is over. It is over. That is- My
1: story has been publicized. Yes. I'll never get a job. Uh, Nobody will ever love me.
0: A hundred percent. And I was like, this is- the proverbial like nail in the coffin, like I'm done. And, you know, I let myself sit with that for maybe an hour, maybe an hour. And, and then I thought, okay, I have 20 years in recovery. I've got a master's in spiritual psychology. I'm certified in NLP. I've got 20 plus years of therapy under my belt. If anybody has tools, I have tools. Uh, people come back. And if there is a way to come back, I will come back. And um, what I had to do was reframe it and give it a really empowering meaning. And I have, um, you know, before this happened, I had a relationship with God. Like I've had a God I call I call my higher power God. Mm-hmm. Not everybody does, but right. I call my higher power God. So I've had a relationship with a higher power. Um, you know, I went to Catholic school Um you know, my parents both had a relationship with God, and um, I really started developing one when I got introduced into the twelve-step arena uh, mm-hmm. because my mother was an alcoholic, and mm-hmm. so I went to support groups and things like that to to deal with that. And I got introduced, and that's where the relationship started. But I will tell you, on the other side of this experience, um, it was more about relying a hundred percent. Because before it, I had a relationship with God, but it was me doing everything. Like Mm -hmm. it was there, but it was me doing everything. And um, on the other side, um, I felt like I'm really going to have to lean into this. And I thought, okay, so here I am. I'm going to be 50 in February, this coming up. Um, This is where my life's at right now. This isn't an accident that this happened. That was the first thing I did with it. Um, What are the chances that my sister could write a letter to the governor and CBS News picks it up and it goes to 400,000 homes? I mean, Mm -hmm. the chances of that statistically, you can't make it happen. And, you know, if you want it to happen and, you know, she did the GoFundMe and what have you. And I just thought. Um, I refused to participate in any kind of verbal arguments with her about it. She was having her experience and she was super defensive about the choice she made. And I was having my experience and I knew if we were going to wore it out, like nothing was going to come of that. And right?
1: your relationship probably would not survive.
0: No, no, it wouldn't. And, and, um, you know, we each have our own perspective, but I will say, um, What's interesting about it is as soon as I got into uh, jail, when I missed that court date, I was lucid enough that I started using my spiritual tools as soon as I got in there.
1: And did they come get you or did you turn yourself in?
0: No, I I mean, ironically, um, I I have the behind the scenes now. I was uh, working with the public defender's office to reschedule the court date, and I was actually doing everything right, which is why they hadn't arrested me. I did everything that I was supposed to do. My sister called them 34 times that day and begged them to arrest me. She was terrified that I was going to die. So and that's her perspective. And I, you know, now that I'm good and I can look back at it, I don't blame her. You know, for thinking that's so good to hear, you know, I don't, but I I have to tell you, like, there was an opportunity, right? Like, and and her and I have talked about this, because I I approached her and I said, you know, I'm going to do this interview with Paul. And I think um, my intention is to help in any way that I can, uh, with my transparency and my honesty about my story. Like, if I can help anyone, you know, I want to do that. And I'd really like to be really honest about the video and is that okay with you? And she said, yes. And I said, well, you need to know. I wanted to share with her that when I tell people about the CBS video, you know, they say, oh my God, do you talk to her anymore? Do you want any relationship with her? And I told her that and she's like, wow, do you know people say, do you talk to you anymore? And I'm like, right. And so I said, I get it. Like, this is, I guess what I would say is I'm proud of myself and I'm grateful to my recovery that I was able to have that pause and say, this doesn't have to be World War Four, and put myself in in her shoes, right? Mm-hmm. And try and look
1: through her eyes. That's so important because she it's it's clear, I think, to anybody that she loved you mm-hmm. and she was out of answers and this was a shot in the dark.
0: Yes. And, and then when I do the math, right, it's like she did the video. Um, she, she did a GoFundMe for me for legal costs. And, and, and it was very helpful, very helpful, because coming out of that, um, I have different choices. Um, and I thought, you know, statistically, what are the chances of CBS picking that up? And then I come out and... I'm getting back on my feet and here's a $6,000 appointment to the Amen Clinic. I mean, I know enough from being in the rooms and being on a spiritual path for 20 odd, 20 some years. It's not, it doesn't seem to me to be an accident. Right. I think it seems like it's there for a reason. And this is a
1: part of your path.
0: Right. And like, what can I do with this? Like, here I am. And now I look back at it, Paul, and I got a crash course in, I'd never been to jail. I was in jail for 19 months. I would have never thought that would have happened in a million years. I know all about... Um... Did you look
1: good in a jumper?
0: <laughs> I have no idea. They don't have mirrors. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um. You know, I here's a crash course in public defenders, in the legal system, in mm. mental hospitals, in jails, in law enforcement, in homelessness. You are going
1: to be getting so many emails from listeners who either are stuck in some maze of that or have a loved one who is. And uh, yes, I truly believe this is part of your story, but I cut you off. Go ahead.
0: Continue. Oh, no. And if I can help in any way, I want to, because now that I'm lucid And I'm me, you know, I've always, when I was 29 years old, you know, I told you I had a career in mortgages because my dad was a mortgage person and I adored him from the time I was born. I think I was just one of his biggest fans. And he invited me into the mortgage industry in my twenties. And that's where I ended up. And it paid for my degree in spiritual psychology. And I did a Tony Robbins leadership thing and it paid for NLP and it paid for all of these amazing things. Mm -hmm. And when I was 29, I was told I was a healer and, I believe that in my heart, you know, it's, I'm going to be 50. So I've had 20 years of really, um, integrating that information. And when this happened, I thought, Oh my God, I will, I will never have a practice again. How will I ever help people? And then I just thought, and I had so many people encouraging me and so many people saying you walked out of it though. Like you're good, you know, you're healthy, you're strong, you're good. Um, you can help people, you know, the path. I know my path. Right. I don't know if I know the universal path, but I know I know what I did and I know the way that I walked. And if I can take that and I can help people with it. I think, you know, it's not just, you know, people with mental health, but I think when you go through any adversity, you know, that's bigger, like when you're like I'm done, like this mm-hmm. is it and like I don't see answers, right? And that's usually when people get suicidal. Right. When they don't have answers and they're like I'm done, right?
1: We want to envision the plan from start to finish and we- we, we don't get to
0: right, right. And so, you know, like I said, um ironically, that that entire year when I was on the street, um there were so many things that happened, right in so many ways, it's it has to be God's will that I'm sitting here with you. I was almost trafficked and, sexually
1: trafficked, yes. Uh, what, are you comfortable? Shivering? Oh, yes, I yeah. will
0: share it with you. Okay. I'll just give you the summation. I was almost trafficked. I was driven home by a rapist. I was assaulted four times. I woke up at two o'clock in the morning inside my car with, you know, the battery dead because i had gotten in a car accident and I was sleeping in it for four months because I didn't know what else to do. And there was a man looking right at me while I was sleeping at two o'clock in the morning on a deserted, dark commercial street. There were no locks, but he didn't come in like there are so many near misses you know and yet i'm still sitting here yeah. right i love
1: a creepy gentleman
0: <laughs> i don't know if he got sc- <laughs> i don't know you know what thank god i woke up i don't yeah. think he made noise it's right. like i woke up and here's these two eyes like staring at me and i'm like wow. wow you know the trafficking thing um like i said i have been exposed to so many things through life experience that I knew nothing about. But it's not intellectual knowledge, right? It's experience. And so I was walking down the street one of those nights, and I bumped a girl on the sidewalk. And uh, I probably said something to her uh I don't know what I said to her, Uh, nothing off the charts, I would imagine, Mm -hmm. but um, she turned around, she grabbed my arm with one arm, she grabbed my purse with the other, she tried to steal my purse, I held on to my purse, now this is in Woodland Hills, Mm -hmm. Woodland Hills at like nine o'clock, Right. and then grabs my arm and starts pulling me up the grass to the door of this house, about four minutes later, seven guys run out of the house, like on cue, And I have never been so terrified in my whole life. If they had gotten me, I'm just kind of guessing it's some sort of ring, something like that. I I managed to shake her loose and I ran directly into the middle of the street and up the street into oncoming traffic to try and get somebody's attention. Mm -hmm. And thank God the guy stopped and I had to beg him to let me in the car, but he did. And then they started surrounding the car and I'm like dude, you got to drive, go. And he went and uh, thank God for him. Thank God for him. He sat with me for two hours until the police came and I filed the police report. But um, I didn't know that that existed on that level. Wow. <laughs> right? It's mind blowing. Wow. Woodland Hills.
1: Which which is to the people that, that don't live around here, it, like it, when you think of malls, You think of Woodland Hills. It's just, it doesn't get any more Americana than that.
0: pretty much. And and then, you know, the other one I was telling you is I was, um, it was, I had been released from a mental hospital and they give you bus fare. And I was in West Covina <laughs> trying to get back to West Hills. It took me all day. Somehow I figured it out, but I ended up on sunset and I thought, I'll walk up Topanga to Panga in my car because that's where I was. And I couldn't do it. It was freezing. There was no way to walk up PCH.
2: Right.
0: And um, there was a guy there and I asked him if I gave him 50 bucks, you know, would he drive me to my car and he said yes and he drove me and it was good and we had a good conversation and he was about to like let me out of the car and he said by the way uh, I don't remember ex- the exact word he used but he basically said I'm a rapist what um, I wish I could remember the word because rapist is too alarming it's right. like one down from rapist but it is that is what he was saying right I don't know why he would tell me. I really don't. I just stayed super calm. And I was like, okay. Uh, He's like, do you want me to stick around? I'm like, no, I'm good. (laughs) Thank you. I'm good. Those
1: are two sentences you don't hear often. I'm a rapist. And do you want me to stick around? Yeah.
0: Right? So he basically was not all there. Right. And these are the kind of things that, that have... I mean, like... What's ironic about it is uh I was really okay the second time when it happened mm-hmm. and um I had arranged I decided to live I leave the sober living the sober living where I was staying at the time and my sister and I had kind of had a plan and then let's just say that plan didn't work out. So uh it was the beginning of COVID. Um I had money. Uh I just thought I was worried about it running out. Mm-hmm. Um So I'm like, you know, I'll stay a couple nights in my car and, you know, I'll find something, you know, and a couple nights turned into a week or two. And then I ended up getting in a car accident. And right around that time, I was not myself anymore. I was not myself anymore.
1: So, Are, are, Are you able to look back and know when you were in your right mind and lucid and when you were in a state of psychosis? Because I imagine... It's got to be difficult because to you, it's all the same. It all seems like reality. And when you share your story, I know there have to be people who are listening and saying, oh, she wasn't lucid when that happened. She, you know, she's imagining that.
0: I was, though. What's so interesting about it is it was, well, I mean, there were were visual indicators. You know, there were visual indicators that people that saw me were – it was obvious I wasn't okay. Right. It was not obvious to me I wasn't okay. Right. So when, what I will say, I can't say it, I can't make generalizations. I don't want to do that to people, but I can say, you know, what was it? A stress-induced psychotic episode. So what was it? Psychosis.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I didn't know I was in it when I was in it. Right. Looking back, I mean, I have emails that I wrote to my attorneys in the middle of it that are completely lucid, comprehensive. There's like one line that's off. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't know except for that one line. And most of them sound just fine. But, um, so, so it's, but, you know, uh, to see me, there were, there were, there were just indicators. I know like once I had the car accident, I'm pretty sure I hit my head pretty hard too. (laughs) So, um, you know, I don't know, like, Like, I guess to go back up to the macro, there has to be a reason. Like, there just has to be a reason, like, understanding my life, right? And my desire. And what is my desire for my life? I'm going to be 50, right? So I've had this kind of, like, conversation with God, if you will, um, along the lines of take my life and just help me be of service. Help me make a contribution. Help me be useful, your plan, not my plan, you know you show me how can we use this? There has to be a, a reason I had this crash course, you know mm-hmm. this five years of uh, exposure to things that I really knew nothing about because I was a healer before all of this happened, you know, so I worked with people and I loved it. but I had two full time career well the the healing thing was very part time mm-hmm. the mortgage thing was very full time and um, on the other side, right, I've got this felony for evading a police officer, which I would have never done, you know, in my right mind. But what is it's created this pause, you know, in the action, because it's it's almost like a mandatory pause, although it's not like I keep taking in stride. But, you know, every day I was out there during that year, I prayed, Believe it or not, every single day I prayed. I prayed before I went to bed. I asked God to protect me. I asked God to protect my family. I prayed for the people I loved every single day, which is funny, right? And then when I got out, that too. And I, I kind of, I saw my life. I'm like, you know, how I look at this is going to be everything, which is true for anyone, right? When you go through Any situation, anything that's catastrophic or anything, even not catastrophic. Even but, su-
1: success. True. Super important to have it in a clear perspective. You do. And, you know, if you think this, you know, it's going to be, you know, peaches and and cream the rest of my life, you know, I'm past hardship. I've made it to the finish line. Right. Good luck.
0: Well, yeah, because you just don't know what life is going to have in store for you. I would have never, ever thought that would be my reality. Or, or that I would ever go through anything like that. But I, I knew, like, I have a choice. Like, I know too much not to make a conscious, educated decision about where I go from here.
2: Right.
0: And I have so many tools, right? And um, I can spend the rest of my life blaming myself and other people and God. Like, I we can do the blame game for the rest of my life. Or... I can use the tools and go, okay, what if I take full responsibility for whatever part of this is mine, I acknowledge the hurt for the parts that don't belong to me, and I stay empowered around the places that I can take action, and I stay in prayer, and I stay in meditation, I stay in my breathwork practice, I stay conscious, and I stay sober, I stay those, – those words um, – present – you know, mm-hmm. and just see what and happens. Open. And open. I mean, all
1: of that to me is is openness. Right. It's surrender. I mean, boy, the surrenders don't get much deeper than no. <laughs> the surrender you're in right now. No. It's- and
0: yeah, you know, Paul, I mean, so, so this time I just thought it, it's really interesting when something like that happens, right? And you think your life as you know it is over, right? Because I'm thinking, well, it, I mean... That video went to my school where I got my degree in spiritual psychology. It went to my high school. It went to all the places you would never want people to see
1: you. I don't know. It gives you something to talk about at the reunion.
0: <laughs> I'd skip.
1: There's the re- just <laughs> no awkward chatter. You get right into it.
0: No, but I mean, really, like you know, when when that kind of thing happens, like you know, and you think I'm not, I'm not getting up from this, you know, there's a lot of time to look. And I just started looking over my life and I just thought, and, you know, my dad passed away and all of that. And I thought, what do I really want? Uh, I want to be useful. I want to be of service. I want to make a contribution. Um, I have purposely and intentionally withdrawn my energy from the mortgage business um, because it was so difficult to try and launch in the direction of healer, speaker, writer, uh, advocate, uh, whatever that direction is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's just not enough of me. And to have relationships and, and other things in your life, you know? And so I... um you know, I did a lot of work around it. Let's just say I've done a lot of work around it, looking at my part, looking at what my part was in the past and why didn't I get to where I wanted to go and what do I want and that sort of thing. And so I am walking this path of that's my plan today is like, let me see what it looks like to walk in the direction of my dreams and be I'm going to like, I had a healing client in, uh, I think you and I, it was like 2011 when you interviewed me and I I formally launched my practice in 13 and um, I was still doing both and I had a healing client, um, a young man in a wheelchair and he was uh, 25 years old and he had... um, walked into the water in Hawaii on uh, like a family vacation and went surfing for the first time and turned the wrong way on the surfboard and came out of the water paralyzed. And he had this thing called surfer's myelopathy. And so I got the pleasure to like work with him and um, work with his unconscious beliefs. And um, I'm not going to use his name, even though I could, because I asked him if I could use him as a teaching client. But, you know, he had some unconscious stuff and I worked with him. And I remember one time he goes, Alicia, you know, anybody can be a mortgage broker, but not everybody can do what you do with me here. And I thought. That's incredible, right? right? And it's not that mortgage brokers can't be of service because they can be. I mean, right. if anyone's gone through the mortgage process, they know it's that's yes. that's scary all on its own yes.
1: too. But but is it your wheelhouse? You right. know, I think the longer we live, the more we get a sense of, you know, at least for the time being, this feels like it's my wheelhouse. This feels like um, I'm swimming, you know, downstream. I'm not fighting.
0: Yes, and I think you remember, like uh, I interviewed you on my on my podcast that uh, Empowered Purpose Radio, and like I was, I wanted to hear about people that felt like they had found their purpose and their calling, and it's like you look at you, and um, that's what it feels like for me. It's like um, it's what I love. It's what light me. It's what lights me up. You I, know? I
1: I felt it first. Month I knew you and our support groups, one of my biggest breakthroughs in dealing with my trauma, and I've told you many times, was uh, at, a, at a meeting where you were the person that spoke, and you just let it off with an air of uh, vulnerability and honesty, and every person—there was maybe six or eight of us sitting around a table— And we all went so deep into our shame, our insecurity, our fear of just being alive. And I broke down and sobbed for for 45 minutes, not because I was sad, because I felt like I had a purpose now, that this was where I was supposed to be, Mm -hmm. and that God actually loved me and trusted me for this to be my path Mm -hmm. that my life wasn't over my life was really just beginning yes and it it, i think so much of it had had to do with you and and your message and how safe i felt and i think everybody in that room felt uh opening up so uh, i agree
0: Thank you. Fuck the
1: mortgage business.
0: <laughs> <For> <laughs> I'm you. so grateful to the mortgage for, business. I got to tell you. you, it's been, it's been quite a thing. Cause you know, I did well and I like being fully self-supporting and you know, um, I think you can have both, but like at the end of the day, you know, I want to be of service, but you know, you said fear and, um, you know, I guess that's like the message I would convey, like, I know what it's like on the other side of this, like, ironically, and maybe that's God's goodness, right? Because I have a feeling like, you know, I, I have a lot of research I want to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the beginning of me moving, you know, in this direction to see how I can help. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I have a feeling that the delusion is A trauma response like the psychosis itself was kind of like a trauma response you know when they say stress-induced psychotic episode um, I like to look at it that way I'll tell you what it did for me is I really had almost other than that trafficking incident Mm -hmm. right and the guy announcing that and the times when I was assaulted but I was out there for a year right on and off for a year hotels in the street I wasn't scared I wasn't scared. And I was in, it was me in like four blankets, you know, and I wasn't scared um, until I came out of it, right? you know, until I came out of it. And and I have kind of kept that promise to myself. I developed a treatment plan. I thought if if someone came to me with exactly what I'm going through, right, what would I tell them to do? Mm -hmm. And that's what I did with myself is like, this is what I would do you know, with a, with a healing client. So I'm going to move myself through that process because I can. And there have been days that I have been, you know, that happens when you're conscious and present and sober and awake and in the world, fear still happens, right?
1: Sadness, sadness,
0: grief, anger, all of it. Right. And, um, you know, I just, I've been making it a habit of just saying, I need you to help me. I feel it. I need you to help me. I need you to be with me. I need you to help me. And I've had incredible like intuitive guidance. I just feel like I'm being walked. I'm being guided. Um, Life is so good. And I have to say like how amazing, right? Last Christmas, I was sitting on a gas station, sitting in a gas station. That's where I slept that night. And I had a little candle that said joy to the world and four blankets. (laughs) And that was my Christmas last year. Wow. And, you know, um, I'm with my family. I'm with my niece and nephew. I have like an incredible relationship with them. And this is, you know, about seven, eight months later. Mm -hmm. Uh, My sister and I are very close. My brother and I are pretty close. And um, I'm just grateful. And I like... The joy that I feel and the gratitude that I feel on a daily basis, Paul, I don't feel like my circumstances necessarily reflect Mm -hmm. what I feel inside yet. Right. Yeah. But I'm so good. Yeah. You know what I mean?
1: So moving forward, are there checks and balances in place to see that it it you don't slide backslide and get to that place again where you're not taking
0: uh, well let me ma- let me be candid about to- that. Well I'm only or- on they've already been tapering me off. So let me be really candid about that. Okay. Um the psychiatric um view
1: mm-hmm.
0: um is to come off. Okay. Under psychiatric observation, uh that's for my family. <laughs> that's. Right. Uh it's less for me, it's more about me honoring them and um and I would, ha- it's, it's, it's the way it needs to be anyway, right? So it's court ordered for me to deal with the wreckage of what this situation mm-hmm. is. And um, I've been in group therapy for six months. So I, I was going to group therapy three and a half hours a day, three times a week, which I just wow. used. I used, you know, I've done there. I told her when I got there, I said, you know, i I've done 20 years of therapy and I've done this and I've done that and I've done this. And I'm like, cause I'm like, I'm going to be bored to death. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm um, just like, I, I hear that. I totally get that. And, um, I decided I'm here. I'm just going to use this, you know, mm-hmm. and I use it as an opportunity to be transparent and to walk through this process. It's been incredible. Mm-hmm. And so what they did is they tapered me off the medication. So I'm down to 0.5 milligrams okay. and I'm coming off. And, um, so far so good. So
1: so then is a part of the the aftercare uh, monitoring your stress level and making sure because that seems to have been the thing that that triggered this.
0: Um it's not ordinary stress. Okay. I'll tell you that because I if if it were ordinary stress it would have happened a long time ago and it would have happened in like a lot you know because right. my job itself was so stressful just right. monitoring people's rates and you know the other things but it's it's um It's exorbitant amounts of stress. Like I said, the stressor both times that it happened was um, ending up homeless. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the thing that moved me beyond. It's a day-to-day thing. I'll tell you what they said uh, at the Amon Clinic is they said, you're kind of an anomaly to us. Wow. Um, Because your brain activity doesn't match up to any kind of, but they're testing me to make sure there's no uh, inflammation, no traumatic brain injury, no Lyme disease, no Mm -hmm. toxic mold, anything like that. They want to take out all medical reasons that something Mm -hmm. like that could have
2: occurred. Gotcha.
0: But um, yeah, I hear you. And I'm staying vigilant because I certainly don't want to go through that ever again. So um, yeah, I'm present and supported and vigilant and just taking it a day at a time and um but but life is good life is good
1: so good to have you back so good to have you back i love you so much
0: oh i love you too i'm so grateful for you thank you for having me
1: I, i really appreciate you going so deep and saying it all publicly and owning your story because society uh in many ways is not ready to treat um afflictions of the brain the way we treat afflictions of the other parts of the body
0: true I, you know he talks about that a lot Daniel Amon talks about that like psychiatry is the only medical discipline where they don't um, they don't look at the organ that they're um, diagnosing and, you know, what happens, I don't remember if I shared the statistic with you, but what he shares is that um, it's, I don't have the exact number I was looking for before I came on here because I wanted to have his Mm -hmm. statistic, but he said something like 4% of psychiatric diagnoses are accurate. It's a really small number because most of the diagnosis is subjective or it's based Mm -hmm. on behavior, but what he pointed out is that a lot of symptoms um, and behaviors can masquerade like it's mental illness. It can look like it's mental illness, but yeah. it could be traumatic brain injury. It could be Lyme disease. It could be there There's these other options, right? right? People have had concussions. They don't remember yeah. um, There's side effects to a lot of the psychiatric medication. And I, I, I know a lot of people that it has helped. I don't have that experience, but there are people that have had that experience. So I try and stay super open-minded, but they like to treat people homeopathically. They do medicate too. Mm-hmm. Um but they they prescribe a lot of um like supplements that mm-hmm. um they ask a unique question that I think is not asked enough. And you just basically said it. And the, the question they asked is, how far are you away from a really healthy brain? And how can we get you to a healthy brain? I mean, that's not something you hear when you go to the psychiatrist. Right. They're not right. really interested in your healthy brain. They usually
1: ask, do you, you know, do you, who's your insurance? <laughs> <laughs> right?
0: And, you know, I've been blessed with really loving and compassionate and really great psychiatrists. I really have. Um, they, they, I've been fortunate, I will say that, um, for the ones I ended up with. So uh, I'm grateful to them, you know, for being present and aware and and tapering me off. But I I mean, I think the gaming clinics, you know, have like an incredible thing going on there. And, um, you know, they're doing incredible work. And I want to support that, too, because I think that that's so accurate, you know. Right.
1: Well, thank you so much for coming on, and I will forward all the emails that I, that I get to you. I so
0: look forward to it. Yeah. Thank you, Paul, so much for having me.
1: Wow. I, I don't know if I can find words to to really express how grateful I am to have her back in my life and to, and to see her well and, uh, and thriving. It's so nice. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the survey... Uh, Sexual Abuse or Violation of a Young Male by Older Female. I always hate that title when I read it. Like, really? You couldn't find a more succinct title for that survey than that? Uh, this is filled out by a woman uh, who calls herself painfully candid. She uh, was a victim of sexual abuse outside of uh, events here and never reported them. Uh, she's in her 50s. Um And she writes, At 13 or 14, I kissed my infant nephew on the lips for what seemed like a long time. It may have been 20 or 30 seconds. My slightly younger sister was with me in the front yard and yelled at me to stop. I did. It felt like coming out of a dissociative episode. I had no interest in in, in inappropriate touching of his or any other child's genitals, and it wasn't premeditated. I never fantasized about anything like that. At 14, I don't think I had any sexual fantasies. My younger sister, who had stopped me, had taken pics. I handed her my camera to take pictures of our nephew. She later showed me in private the pictures that she had taken. I told her it was wrong and I would never do it again. I tore up the photos. This was all in the 70s before digital photography. She really woke me up. I never did it again. I don't have sexual feelings towards children at all. Never have. I'm not making excuses, but I had been molested by my brother who was eight years older when I was about seven behind our house in a play fort he built for us. Add repeated verbal assaults on the elementary school playground by one boy who said he was going to kidnap me, take me to his castle, and rape me. Add a second boy in middle school who repeatedly sexually assaulted me and a covertly incestuous mother. I was confused and scared as hell, with no one to go to. I felt I had to handle everything on my own. Classic latchkey kid. I'd also been bullied in grade school and was told by my mom to, quote, just ignore it and they'll stop, unquote. Instead, it accelerated. In elementary school, I eventually fought back physically, which seemed a hell of a lot more effective, and I didn't tell my mom. Remembering these things, what feelings come up? Regret. How stupid was I? Confusion and disbelief about who or what I was. Shame because of what I did. Do you feel any damage was done? Was it innocent and natural or somewhere in between? It was probably in between. On my end, it was innocent in the sense that I did not understand boundaries, but not natural, Uh, not something that should have ever happened. Uh, uh, Let's see... If you've never experienced one of the above situations and there's only a fantasy, how does the fantasy make you feel? Do you feel it's something that might happen one day? No fantasy, unless you count my, quote, grown-up fantasy about being the filling sandwich between Keanu Reeves and Val Kilmer, both men my age, by the way. Thank you so much for that survey, and I think such a great example of... Um, Things that kids can can do when they're confused and they and they grow up in chaos and and, and they don't have boundaries and uh, you know I, I hope that you're not beating yourself up uh, about that because it does seem uh, like something that you know while inappropriate was still innocent um, you know those two things are 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 not mutually exclusive. Um, but thank you for your for your honesty and sending you, sending you some love this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself fuck me and he writes closing my brother's eyes after he died I still feel guilty about it thinking it wasn't my place to do so I don't know if it was really putting him to rest or what the fuck was the meaning behind it it feels more awful than anything and fucking selfish his eyes still looked like he was in there That wasn't my responsibility. Fuck, I don't know. That that had to be hard. That had to be really hard. And plus all the movies we've seen where, you know, somebody closes the other person's eyes. I don't know what I would do. Maybe I'd split the difference and throw some shades on them. You know? Maybe you close one eye so it looks like they're winking. You know, form their hand into a thumbs up. And then people come in that view the body are like, oh, he looked happy to die. Or if you didn't like him, uh, you make him suck his thumb. And you have an open casket. I hope that helps. (laughs) This is from the shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself fuck iPhones. She uh, is 19 identifies as straight, uh, It says, but I'd like to try something with a woman. She was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, she was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, she writes, I'm 19 years old, and it's something that I haven't thought about for a while, but when I was about seven, my dad was dating another woman with an adopted daughter the same ages as me. This forced us to be friends, best friends. She was a bully to me in ways I didn't see at the time. She didn't let me see any other friends she controlled what games we played and once hit my head across a concrete wall i was quote fine anyway after school she used to take me up to her room and we would undress completely naked and get under the covers she would then get me to go on my hands and knees whilst she licked my ass and vagina i didn't know how i felt about it at the time i guess the sensation was nice ish But I felt so ashamed and didn't want to do it back. But she made me do it back. I tried to fake it by licking my finger. She always knew it wasn't my tongue. By the way, I had the same experience once with an older uh, uh, neighbor uh, on my block. He was about four years older than me. So, yeah, it's fucking awful. One day I remember her mom walking in just after we got from beneath the covers and asking why we were naked. That was the last time it happened. I spent a lot of time anxious around that girl. But when I went to secondary school, I finally was split up by being in a different class. I found new friends, and she started to get bullied. I later found out she had some learning difficulties, which would explain some of her attention-seeking behavior and lies. I became very anxious that she would tell people about what we used to do. Uh, I struggled to eat. I became very unhappy for a short while, and one day after school, I managed to tell my dad. He listened and said he was sorry he didn't know and told me these things happen a lot, and it was nothing to be ashamed of. For the first time in a short while, I felt okay again and managed to eat my dinner that evening. I knew the girl was the same age as me, and I don't blame her for that. She was adopted because she was put into care after being sexually abused by a lot by her father, so now I know that I feel sorry for her. I'm over it now, but I have a problem with germs and contamination, especially with my family. I cannot drink from the same glass. Some days I cannot be touched by them or touch them. I hate kissing people, but maybe that's because I haven't found someone I'm attracted to just yet. Anyway, I don't know if that's related, question mark. Being intimate now is really hard. I've never dated but been on dates with a few very nice guys. Just the moment things get intimate, sexually, I run. I lost my virginity uh, on a night out to a guy I just met. Me and my friends went back to his shared hotel room, and I was kissing him, but already told him I didn't want sex. He forced himself on me and managed to get my pants down and enter me a little bit. He kept trying, and I kept saying no. His friend beside us, who was with my friend, finally got him to stop by saying, mate, it's obvious she doesn't want it. And so he stopped uh, and went to sleep. If that other guy wasn't in the room that night, I knew things could be worse. I slept for a few hours and his friend beside me asked if I was all right and held my hand, which he then led to his area. I was crying and giving this guy a hand job in a bed next over. What the fuck, right? When it was light enough, I woke up My friend's in the room, and I stole 20 pounds out of his wallet from the guy to get a taxi home. I thought the least he can do after taking my virginity without consent. I've had sex a few times after because I thought, why not? Now I'm no longer a virgin and have no one special to save it for. I slept with someone 10 years older. I hated it. I slept with my friend the only time I was sober enough to give consent, and I enjoyed it, but he let me left me straight after, and told me if I ever told anyone, he would never speak to me again. He then told people and said I got him drunk. I slept with another guy, fell asleep halfway through, and he kept going at it, even when I was half asleep. I could barely sit down the next day. Anyway, sex to me now is ruined, and it's barely even started. I don't trust guys anymore. I feel ugly and unworthy. Sorry about it being so long. It's nice to share something I keep to myself. Well, I'm really glad that you found an outlet to express that. Uh, it's really, really important in processing shit. And my God, how how could you feel any sense of trust after the, the shit that you've been through? Um, it makes sense that you're feeling the way that you're feeling. And... Uh, I just, I just want to encourage you to keep processing this, whether it's with a therapist or a support group or close friends. But, I mean, that is a big fucking wound on your soul. Darkest thoughts. At night especially, I always think about how people would react if I were to die or if I was seriously hurt. When I was younger, I wished to break bones. I'm not sure why. Being the youngest sibling, I got plenty of attention. I think I just like attention and want it. Well, you know, the other thing to consider, too, is what was the type of attention? Because sometimes attention can be unhealthy attention. And I'm not saying that was the case, but it's certainly something to think about when you uh, say, well, you know, I wasn't ignored. Darkest Secrets, uh, I'm not really sure. That makes me feel incredibly boring. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. The idea of having sex with another woman excites me. It's just something I've never done, but I want to try. Also, also older, married, stable men. When I see a man in his 40s, I look at them and their wife and feel jealousy. I want to be in a stable marriage with a guy to look after me. I find the idea of them keeping me safe behind their wife's back so safe and sexy. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would have told the old man at the bus stop the other day that winked at me uh, and wasn't stopping, staring, to fuck off. I wish I did uh, then, but I'm timid like that. He might have been dead. Was he moving? What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that when I travel and leave home for months at a time, that I don't get homesick and let it ruin the present experience. I also wish for my brother to find himself help. I think he's addicted to skunk and alcohol, but he denies it. He has no job and is putting on weight. Uh, he self-medicates with Valium or Xanax bought on the internet. It makes me sad, but I don't know how I can help him. Well, I know how you can help yourself, and that is by going to a support group for the loved ones of addicts or alcoholics, and that will help you um Understand boundaries and how to not forsake taking care of yourself um, and conflate it with what you think is helping somebody else. Because it's fucking confusing when you somebody close to you is is rocketing down to the to the gutter from an addiction or untreated mental illness. But thank you for filling that out. This is a happy moment filled out by a gender-fluid person who r- refers to themselves as Manu, and they write, I've been going to EMDR therapy for sexual trauma, and it just had my third session earlier today. I felt n- numb throughout the whole session, couldn't really connect to any strong emotions while describing objectively horrifying things. Made me feel like I was failing therapy on top of failing at a lot of other stuff in my life. Then in the evening, I put on my headphones and listened to your latest episode while doing chores around the house, my usual self-care routine, and at the end where you spoke with tears in your voice about how it felt to open up about the things with your mom and your feeling of connection with us listeners, I broke down crying with you. It was such a relief, and it felt like all the pent-up things that wouldn't budge during this session came loose and gave me the realization that feelings of togetherness or empathy can be just as powerful emotions as anger or sorrow to process my trauma. My abusers made me feel alone, wrong, and disconnected from other people. When I feel for and with other people, I gain back something tender and precious that was taken from me. Thank you for being so vulnerable and brave on your podcast, allowing me to get in touch with the vulnerability within myself when I needed it. And then uh, they write, not a native speaker. Sorry if I worded weirdly. Uh, First of all, your grammar is probably better than mine. Uh, I would have never guessed that you were not a native speaker. I'm continually amazed uh, when people whose primary language isn't English uh, apologize at the end of (laughs) a perfectly grammatical... See, look. A grammatically perfect uh, survey, but uh, the episode that they're referring to is uh, the the re-airing I did of uh, my first interview with uh, Dr. Jessica Zucker, um, and I'm glad it helped you feel less alone. Um, you know, people sometimes will say to me, you know, oh, you know, you're 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 being so helpful to people with your podcast, and I always like to say, you know, that's that's. That's awesome, but it helps me as well because, I, and it sounds corny, but there there is a sense of community in doing this podcast. Um, it's similar, um, not the same as, but similar to, to the feeling I get from support groups, um, being one of many, having a sh- shared struggle. Um, it can be, and sometimes laughing about the fucked upness of it. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Empty Hole, W-H-O-L-E, 14. Uh, She is in her 30s, identifies as straight, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. When I was five or six, I was in my cousin's room. He was 14, I think. When he came in and closed the door, he asked me why I was in there, and I can't recall having an answer. He laid on the bed and said if I wanted uh, out, I'd have to lick his dick. He didn't say it like that, though. Anyway, I did lick it, and I remember it being pretty impressive size-wise. But everything is huge when you're little. He then asked me what it tasted like. I said a hot dog. Then he let me out. Nothing sexual ever happened with him again. When I was ten, eleven, twelve, 11, 12, another cousin ate me out for an entire summer. He humped me once, uh, like rubbing his dick uh, between my lips, and I remember distinctively really liking it. I can even recall grabbing him and pulling him harder against me. I've never had any form of animosity towards either of them. Uh, She's been emotionally abused. I think this is mostly just saying games, I suppose, but in the moment, it really fucked me up. I did things that now I am embarrassed to even admit. Uh, I'm order, oh, in order, I think is what she was trying to write, to keep a guy interested. Any positive experiences with abusers? I don't hold a grudge or condemn condemn them for it. They were young, and honestly, it wasn't a forced thing. I was intrigued as well. Darkest thoughts? Mostly sex-based stuff, like being the mouth behind a glory hole, having a 10-guy orgy, being utterly seductive and seducing as many men as I can. I weirdly love being a guy's side piece, but I want to encompass him till it hurts. I don't want him for myself, but I want him to want me in an almost obsessive way, minus the crazy or stalking element. Darkest Secrets I was alarmingly promiscuous when I turned 30. I would troll Craigslist and meet random guys to blow and go. Once met a much, much older man who I allowed to do BDSM with me. I sometimes watch bestiality porn because it makes me feel dirty, and I love that feeling. Uh, sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Being made a sex pet. I want to please, I want to, reward. I want to be rewarded for doing a good job, I want to be punished if I misbehave, but I mostly want to make someone feel the way I wish someone could make me feel. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? A friend of mine who I used to fuck. I have no desire to fuck him anymore because the sex is boring. He always mentions it, and I avoid the issue, but I would tell him he's boring. He's a one note humper with no imagination whatsoever, and it drives me up like Death Valley, even thinking about fucking him. But I love hanging out with him. What, if anything, do you wish for? To be loved. To find a man who is 30% fucked up, not 60%. To be myself with someone and not have to edit my feelings or my thoughts. Have you shared these things with others? Not really. I mean, some of it a friend knows, but mostly no. How do you feel after writing these things down? No special feeling. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Too bad I don't know who you are. Thank you for sharing all of those, all of those things. Um, you have been through a lot, and I mean... That first instance, you were five or six and he was 14 or so. I mean fuck that is definitely going to affect somebody in in my opinion. Um, I appreciate your honesty and I appreciate you going going deep there and sharing that stuff. This is uh, from the Love Survey, filled out by Slumberjack, and they write, I love catching creatures. Ever since I was a kid, I've been in love with nature and all of its critters. Small animals, frogs, lizards, snakes, turtles, are usually the ones I'll track down and say hello to. There's nothing more joyful than seeing a little friend hopping or scurrying around the yard, frogs being my favorite." I always make sure to bring water with me to keep my hands wet when handling them. They drink by absorbing water through their skin, and human contact can dry them out and even transfer harmful chemicals to them if you're not careful. The reaction from people is always the same when they see me suddenly drop down to my knees and grab a frog with my bare hands. They ask, what are you going to do with it? This question always confused me. What do you mean? I'm going to say hi to this big old handsome squishy boy. I'm going to hold him up to my face to gaze into his beautifully detailed, speckled eyes. I'm going to watch his throat muscles bob up and down as he breathes and hope that he sings so I can see it puff up to that fun bubble shape. I'm going to admire the intricate patterns on his skin that help him camouflage to his surroundings and complement his st- striking yellow color on the inside of his thighs. I'm going to feel all his little toes grip onto my finger as he relaxes and realize I'm not about to make him my meal. Slowly, his heartbeat and breathing will return to a normal pace and he'll let me turn him around so I can continue observing him. I'm going to get my hands wet with his little squishy body and not care if he spitefully pees on me. And when I finish saying my hellos or when he gets squirmy again, I'll lower him back down and watch him hop away in a fashion that only froggies can do. It's one thing to see a frog on TV or in photos, but to actually handle one and feel its little life force in the palm of your hand and know that each of these critters have their own unique personality is something that never gets old to me. Wow. Wow. I just made my fucking afternoon. Thank you so much for that. And then finally, this is uh, a happy moment filled out by Derek. And he writes, Today I took my daughter for a walk while I did all the walking today while she sat up high on my shoulders. We usually walk to the park. She likes the busy street and all the vehicles rolling by, so we walk a couple blocks on the busy street onto a slower, quieter one. I keep my phone in my pocket unattached to the rest of the world except to snap a couple pictures of her. She loves to call out car, bus, train, geese, acorn. She's just so happy and curious. She doesn't like to walk uh, a set pace on a set route and get back home. She likes to stop, look around, play in the dirt, and do a little walking in between all that. And of course, she loves to run. I want her to remember being happy and safe and loved, just for being who she is. I was incredibly suppressed and discouraged from speaking and expressing myself as a child. So if my kid wants to fucking be happy and scream, you're damn right. I'm gonna let her. I'm gonna let her. Shit, I'll scream too. It's more fun that way. She's so fucking elated to be alive, and I don't want anyone to ever take that away from her, especially not her parents'. When I was her age, I was being abused physically, verbally, emotionally, and sexually, all at home. I don't want that for her. Wow. Wow, so bittersweet. There are few things that I love as much as seeing a parent be present and loving with their kid. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up, up in some weird way. Everybody I know is
0: bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.